Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, Good evening and a very warm welcome uh, to colleagues and visitors um, to this Shark Sydney Ideas event, a multidisciplinary exploration of truth and its value Uh, I'm Anna-Marie Jargos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Um, It's a a great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. For now, what I'd like to do is um, clear the way to um, the panel event by introducing uh, Professor Nick Enfield, um, a colleague I was delighted, first of all, to recruit back to Australia from Europe and then several years later to appoint him as the inaugural director of Shark, Um, a professor of linguistics, Nick is an extremely versatile scholar um, whose impactful research contributions, whether in field linguistics or philosophy of language, are driven by his unflagging curiosity about what makes the world of words work. Even the titles of his recent books, I think, give us some clue to this. The utility of meaning, what words mean and why, the concept of action, and how we talk, the inner workings of conversation. His broad intellectual reach is further evident in the fact that he's not only a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia, but also a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, both positions only attained after rigorous, peer-nominated electoral processes. Nick is also head of a research initiative on the crisis of post-truth discourse, an area which will obviously inform his presentation this evening. Please welcome... Nick Enfield. Thank you um, very much for this incredibly generous introduction. Um, so welcome everybody. Um, I'm not going to talk about shark. It's been introduced to you and what I want to do is get straight into um, the panel. Um, now the speakers are going to be uh, myself who you've now uh, just heard about and I won't be giving uh, same blowing uh, lengthy introductions to my colleagues here although I could. Um, we're going to be hearing from, from the forensic criminologist Rebecca Scott Gray, who is Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at this university, and she's editor of the book Secrecy, Law and Society. The political philosopher Duncan Iverson, author of the books Postcolonial Liberalism and Rights, and head of the university's research portfolio. And the romantic philosopher Dahlia Nasser, who is senior lecturer in philosophy here and author of the book, The Romantic Absolute. So if I can begin, in 2011, a man by the name of Louis Jun was living in Canberra working as a chef at the German club. And his family were back in China, but he had friends in Canberra. And so when it came to New Year's Eve, he invited his friends around. He wanted to cook them a meal. Uh, to celebrate the new year. So he did his usual shift at the German club. And when the kitchen was closed to the public, he set about preparing that meal for his friends. And together they ate to see in the new year. Now, two days later, he was dead. One of the people, uh, other people in the party was dead. And a third uh, was seriously ill in hospital. Now, it turns out that he had cooked that meal using death caps. Now, it's a kind of mushroom that closely resembles the 
paddy straw mushroom, which is widely used in Chinese cooking. So we can fairly safely assume that he had a false belief. He believed that he had collected these mushrooms that were safe to eat, when in reality he was preparing a meal for his friends using the world's most poisonous fungus. All right, so you're probably wondering, why would I want to start um, the evening with such a grim tale? Well, the tale uh, is important, I think, because it's a good illustration of some of the key coordinates for um, what it is that we're going to be talking about tonight. One is that there is such a thing as reality. Two, our beliefs about reality serve as reasons for action. What we believe gives us our basis for decision-making and for carrying out our actions. And third, obviously in this case, uh, those actions and decisions are consequential. So we had better be concerned for the truth, uh, because if we're not, we can find ourselves in the same kind of deep trouble um, as the man in our story found himself in. Now, over the last couple of years in our conversations here about truth, I've often heard it said, and I've often read it written, that people don't care about truth. Well, I don't think that's the case, um, particularly when it comes to truth that is matters that are close to us that have direct consequences to us. We do care about truth deeply. So, for example, I care about the status of the mushrooms in the meal that you've just cooked for me. If I'm vegan, I care if you tell me it's a vegan meal, um, about whether or not it's going to turn out there were animal products in the food. I care if I get accused of a crime that I didn't commit, or if my family and loved ones lie to me. So it's not that people don't care about the truth, it's that we have an overly limited regard for the truth. So it's as if there's a circle around us, and the things that are inside the circle that are close to us, we care about the truth in regards to those things. Outside the circle, not so much. So this is borrowing a metaphor from the moral philosopher Peter Singer. Many of you will know. Um, he wrote a book called Expanding the Circle, and it was about the moral circle of regard for the welfare of others. And he argued that if we think carefully about it, we see that we can and should expand the circle of regard for others. And I think the same is true about our circle of regard for the truth. One way to illustrate this and to think about this in relation to our topic tonight is in our use of natural resources. So I do field research in Laos. I work in villages that are far from the urban centers. And these villages are either situated in forests or they're next to forest reserves. But people in these villages depend on those forests for the plants and animals that allow them to get food on the table for their kids. So from their point of view, they're looking at approximate facts and they're thinking, OK, here's a resource. I'm going to exploit it. That so makes complete sense from within the circle. But beyond that, it's hard for us to see the effects down the track. So when population uh, expands over time, we've seen again and again uh, there and elsewhere that those resources get depleted. So um, the actions of the individuals then end up being detrimental to our well-being. Now obviously we're seeing that play out at the global scale. So the bottom line is that uh, we really do 
need to expand our circle of regard for the truth, um, if not just for our own selfish reasons, also for greater ethical reasons. Now, the obvious next question is, how are we going to do this? Well, another thing that I've learned in our discussions here about truth is that there's no technical solution. So no amount of fact-checking, no amount of Firefox add-ons that tell you what you've just read is false or contested uh, is going to change the way that we think about the truth in any kind of simple way. What needs to change are our norms around accountability for the things that we say and their relationship to reality. Donald Trump has made some 4,000-plus false statements since coming into office. It's stunning. And when you see his supporters and the way that they respond uh, to falsehoods being pointed out, you see them saying, either I don't believe that or it's fine. I like him. I trust him. And so what we see is that the problem is that there's no accountability for making statements that aren't true, that don't correspond to reality, or that are garbled, or that don't make sense. And what we need to do, uh, in the words of the author Helen Pluckrose, is to make bad reasoning embarrassing again. The civil rights movement in the 20th century succeeded in getting a whole generation of people to expand the circle of regard for the welfare of others. And I think that we could have something like this in the form of something like a civil reality movement, if you like. And of course, we've had uh, something like this in the past. The famous enlightenment of the 18th century, Dahlia will be saying some things about that um, a bit later. Um, but of course, any such movement, its products, its outcomes are never fixed or permanent. They need continued work in order to keep those norms, uh, the accountability around our practices and our expectations in place. So these things require constant attention. So if somebody says to you, there is no truth, truth is entirely constructed, or people don't care about the truth, think of the death cap and the lesson that it teaches us. That there is a reality and that our beliefs about reality are a guide for decisions that we make and the actions that we take. And that reality is very often beyond our otherwise fairly limited circle of regard for the truth, and that's what we need to change. So let me now hand over to the forensic criminologist, Rebecca Scott Bray. Great, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'd also like to acknowledge that we are gathering tonight on Aboriginal land, and I'm talking about contested death, which affects disproportionately Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. So we're in the midst of a death revolution, and public attention to death in Western societies is exploding. We're clustering around conversations seeking change in how we face death and how we achieve a good death. We're encouraged to, dis to discuss and um, explore end-of-life wishes and options, to access information, to exercise choices, to opt for the path as far as possible of choosing how and when to die, how to manage it, how to design it, our funerals, or even how to dispense with ritual altogether and go straight from deathbed to grave. That is, with no fanfare and no funeral. 
But this logic of liberation lies in direct contrast to the lack of choice, the terrifying violence, and the absence of control that many communities and individuals experience at end of life in our society. Where death isn't ritualised, it's premature, traumatic, delivered in state care, undeniably marginalised and racialised, and entirely preventable. These are not deaths that we can prepare for, as if we could palliate symptoms, their legacies and impacts, but they are deaths that we have a duty to respond to and an obligation to prevent. I'm talking about death and particularly contested death because I'm in the middle of a series of discussions over three weeks, a shark lab, a critical death investigation lab, that interrogates issues around contested deaths, such as death in custody, custody and care, during police operations or following disasters. And the truth is the circle of contestation is growing. The lab events are a cumulative conversation around unpacking the truths of these deaths, how truth is frustrated, squashed, concealed, manufactured and revealed. The lab asks which truth of death prevails and whose truth is privileged. And in cases of contested deaths, this ground is incredibly shifty. So what are some of the ways that we seek to account for death in society and its truth? Well, we undertake a lot of counting of deaths in this country and the ways this is occurring and the ways we are seeking to account for death are clearly growing outside formal institutional practices and very much in real time. So in Australia alone, we've got a number of initiatives such as the Australian Border Deaths Database, Counting Dead Women by Destroy the Joint and the Australian Femicide Map, and we've got interactive digital maps of Indigenous massacres, such as Judy Watson's map, The Name of Places, and Lyndall Ryan's map, Colonial Frontier Massacres in Central and Eastern Australia. Measurement is purely horrifying, but it's instrumental. Classifying a death has meaning. It's a translation. And counting and classifying deaths can mobilise attention. In fact, some criminologists have been agitating for a number of years about the failure to consistently count and so classify and contextualise deaths in immigration detention as deaths in custody with their ensuing mandatory inquest scrutiny. So I would argue that these counting practices and indeed mortality statistics generally all acknowledge that an awareness of death in its numbers and categories is an important facet of taking the mortal temperature of society past and present. But we have to be wary of an overemphasis on death's numbers to reveal truth because body counts can negate the important context of death. That is, it can relegate death circumstances to mere marginalia. And in the realm of public inquiry into death, such as coroner's inquest, which is my area, circumstances are supposed to count. Circumstances matter. We have systems and practices to unpack and investigate this, and a key aim is to distill the facts of death so as to contribute to public understanding. But how we do this, how we investigate death circumstances, and how we structure and draw the boundaries around our knowledge about death says a lot about our circles of truth. As part of the Critical Death Investigation Lab, a public event was held here on Monday night in this room that discussed two digital initiatives that speak to the context of death's troubling circumstances. The Guardian's Deaths Inside database, which tracks every Indigenous death in custody since 2008, and the Deathscape site, which is a transnational project mapping racialised and Indigenous um, custodial deaths in settler states. These databases skew and over a reliance on numbers, and instead they focus on stories. 
So Deathscapes, for example, situates death in context by detailing history and its continuing legacies. So their accounting for death is enfolded in the generous biography of those who died, and so privileges lives of contribution and of meaning, which are echoed in the voices of the bereaved and the communities they come from, their artwork, song, poetry, and memories. These virtual cultures humanize the dead in the context of their life and their relationship with families and friends, acknowledging that death, the dead, grief, and the living cannot be separated when we think about the truth of death. And by drawing on videos, news reports, community resources such as posters, footage of gatherings, photographs and interviews, as well as institutional resources such as coronial findings without privileging them, Deathscapes picks at the idea of where the truth of death really lies when we are thinking about death. And Shark has enabled me to bring out a truth seeker, Phil Scraton, whose work on Hillsborough has backed the truth for decades. And just last week, Phil and I met with different people to begin our conversations here, starting with families, because they're the ones who are left to embrace the benefits or bear the failings of any system of death inquiry. Our lab commences with the view that death and its investigation is wholly lived and experienced by bereaved families and friends, and we need to hear what they have to say. Death investigation is not reducible to simple fact-finding endeavours. It performs a much broader meaning-making task around death and the truth it seeks to tell. So to families. Families who, before they told us about the death of their loved one, told us about their loved one. The truth of death is that their family member lived, and they lived fully, vibrantly, and beautifully. Simon Woods has written that one of the most rudimentary duties we have towards the dead is a recognition of them as somebody. We just need to sit down with families for one minute to know that this is true. So for three weeks, we're doing something unique with our lab. We're listening and talking to a whole range of people, but we started with families. And we're then slowly building knowledge from these discussions to assess how we can enable a just response to untruth and to confront the ultimate untruth that death, and particularly contested death, does not matter. Truth around death has effects and it has significant impacts. From family accounts, it's clear that contextualising death with the truth brings dignity to the deceased and solace to the bereaved. So we're asking, Whose account counts? Thank you. Um, and now, please welcome the political philosopher, Duncan Iverson. It's nice to be referred to as a political philosopher. I get referred to so many other things during the course of the week. It's nice to have that, uh, to return to that. So I wanted to be very brief because essentially, uh, Nick has asked me to talk about the nature of truth in relation to are thinking about rights or in, in, in relation to the concept of rights. And I want to come at this um, in a slightly oblique way, but I'll do it briefly and, and, and bear with me. And essentially what I want to do is think about the relationship between truth and liberal democracy and the extent to which democracy depends on certain virtues, amongst which includes what I'll call truthfulness, so the virtue of truthfulness. And what I'm going to argue is that this is essential to what it means to be a citizen, but it's not without challenges, and it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to sound um, sort of complacent about that. Now this might seem as a deeply counterintuitive idea that 
somehow truth is essential, or at least this idea of the virtue of truthfulness, which of course itself depends on there being truth, and we can talk about that in the question time, as, as being essentially connected to democracy. I mean, sure, surely everything around us tells us that this isn't the case, right? Democracy seems to be suffused in lies and deception and horribleness. But that in itself, the fact that we feel that, the fact that that is you know, our emotional reaction, I think is itself quite telling that truth still matters, and especially the virtue of truthfulness. I mean, famously, Plato was probably one of the most brilliant original critics of democracy, right? I mean, remember in the Republic, he says, well, you know, would you go to a musician to ask about you know, your physical health? Would you go to a doctor to ask about the quality of music? You know, why would we ask the, why would we ask the people about the nature of the quality of, of, of politics? Surely we want experts. We want people who know what they're talking about. Democracy uh, is a seething morass of opinion, um, not anything to do with knowledge. And of course, Plato had a fantastically uh, metaphysically ambitious conception of knowledge, but he thought there was such a thing as political knowledge. So it seems, and, and, and of course, you've all had that experience of reading the Republic. You know, there's that wonderful line of Thomas Carlyle saying, you know, the more I read Socrates, the more I understand why they poisoned him. Um, you know, th th there's this real sort of deep dissatisfaction with the nature of democracy. So it seems deeply counterintuitive, but I think, I think it is importantly connected. And I think, it, I think what it requires is looking at democracy in a slightly different way, not the democracy we're surrounded by, but the democracy we want to be inspired by. So here's, here's one way to think of it, and, and, and we'll get to truth. Uh, presently. So I think there's two critical things that democracy tends to be really sort of uh, schematic, two things that democracy in its best light aims to deliver. One is call it dignity or autonomy. Democracy should in some ways speak to the inherent dignity or autonomy, the fundamental equality of those who live in that community. The second thing it should really deliver and, and speaks to, and this is connected, but in complex ways, is what I call problem-solving. Um, democracy should deliver dignity and autonomy. It should, it should somehow express our dignity and autonomy, and it should help us solve problems collectively. In fact, the very nature of democracy is all about solving problems that collectively we can't avoid but uh, having to solve. There are certain public things which we simply have to solve together. So that means, at least on my understanding then, that democracy requires certain infrastructure, a certain architecture. And there are many, many elements to this architecture, many, many rooms in that house, but I just want to focus on one particular room, and that is rights. So liberal democracy requires an architecture, call it, let's call it that, of rights, or a structure of rights. Now here's where that intuitive suspicion of democracy being somehow decoupled from truth rushes in, right? Liberal democracy is all about individual rights and people having a right, in that famous phrase, to their opinion. You don't, of course, we all say that in our first year lectures, you do not have a right to your opinion. You, we want you to actually think differently about that. But having said that, that is a very powerful idea, right? The public sphere is full of people expressing themselves and they are, they are enabled to do that by the structure of rights. A famous paper by Jeremy Waldron saying, we have a right to do wrong. The rich man who spends his money on champagne and caviar and doesn't give it to the poor, he has a right to do that. So, so those negative rights seem decoupled from truth because they empower people 
to have a right to their opinions, which in fact might be fantastical and even arguably morally wrong. But there's another side to democracy and to this architecture of rights, which is positive rights or the rights of public autonomy or what you might call the rights of participation. And this is the one I want to focus on for the remaining part of my remarks. This is sometimes referred to as the right to have rights in the sort of uh, critical theory tradition, but put that aside. This is the, 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 the right to participate. And in fact, our very, our, our ability to hang on to our negative rights in this tradition, in this argument, depends on our having the right to participate. Because in order for us to be genuinely, collectively receiving the dignity and autonomy that we get from others in a democratic system, we have to form action together, we have to engage in collective will formation, and we need that positive right of participation to truly realize ourselves. Now let's call that the work of citizenship. The work of being a member of a political community involves that sort of architecture of rights. And what I want to argue is that the work of citizenship deliberating, arguing, contesting, disagreeing, disagreeing well. Um, all the work of citizenship includes what I call, or, and what a number of people call, not just me, Bernard Williams, Simon Blackburn, a whole range of, of philosophers, the virtue of truthfulness. So part of the work of citizenship is caring about the truth, that you see value in truth, in the work of being a member of a political community. So let's just pause on that idea for a second. What does it mean to be committed to the virtue of truthfulness? Well, again, let me just borrow two ideas from philosopher Bernard Williams. I'll twist them to my own benefit. Williams talks about, well, the virtue of truthfulness involves two sort of substrata. The first is a commitment to accuracy. You do the best you can to acquire true beliefs. Accuracy, you do the best you can to acquire true beliefs. That's part of the work of citizenship. And the second is sincerity. What you say reveals what you believe. So the work of citizenship, in addition to those other things that I talked about, includes being committed to accuracy and sincerity. That's what it means to be truthful. You take care and you do not lie. That might be a bumper sticker uh, for that idea. So, truthfulness, then, is part of the work of citizenship. But, and here I want to conclude, and this is probably a great thing to talk about in the question time, and Nick has touched on it a bit, uh, and I'm sure Dahlia will as well, this doesn't mean that truth is easily obtained or obvious, right? There are a lot of what the British philosopher J.L. Alston called medium-sized dry goods out there. There's a, there's a glass of water on the table. Uh, there's a carpet underfoot. But there are other kinds of truths that are harder to get access to. Uh, and there are other truths that are not self-evident, that we have to work and construct and move towards. And so part of being committed to the virtue of truthfulness is not avoiding the fact that things have to be interpreted. Concepts have to be argued for that there will be disagreement. And in you know, the American philosopher John Rawls's phrase, there'll be reasonable disagreement about important matters in the public sphere. And in fact, to deny that there is reasonable disagreement or to deny that one has to engage in interpretation and the difficult work of getting to grips with those differences is itself not to honor the virtue of truthfulness. So, 
To conclude, it is true that if we look around the world today, and we look around the world of liberal democracy, one interpretation of the connection between truth and rights is that truth has become completely decoupled because of the relentless atomization of the public sphere. But I think there's a more interesting argument to be made, which reconnects truth to the heart of the justification of democracy, but it's one that we have to work to achieve, and it sits at the heart of what it means to be a citizen uh, of a liberal democracy. Okay, stop there. And now let's hear from the romantic philosopher Dalia Nessa. So I want to begin by asking you to imagine that you were born in the free city of Frankfurt in 1749. Maria Theresa had just been confirmed the right to rule Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia, and Louis XV was halfway through his 60-year reign. Champagne had only recently been invented, and a pineapple cost as much as a horse. Just six years later, on the 1st of November, 1755, Lisbon suffered the great earthquake, devastating the city, taking tens of thousands of lives. The fact of such a catastrophic natural event, which paid no heed to human suffering, challenged the belief in God's benevolence. But it confirmed another belief, one that had become widespread since Descartes, namely that nature was fundamentally unlike us. Nature had no consciousness, no intention, and it did not follow any moral dictates. Its actions appeared to be random or, at best, merely mechanical. Nature, in other words, was a dead machine, and this meant that we didn't need to have any moral qualms about what we did to nature. In Frankfurt itself, a city of 3,000 inhabitants, there was little nature. Filled with houses of various shapes and sizes and a ring of fortifications, Frankfurt didn't only look like human culture, but smelled of it as well. If you came into the city via the north, via the Friedberg Gate, you'd first pass a quarter filled with inns and the stench of stables which was only slightly sweetened by the roasting malt for the beer vats and the oats sitting out in open boxes. If you came in through the ghetto, you'd smell the salted meat and the dried fish. And as you made your way into the city center, you'd begin to smell the aromas emanating from the coffee house. In whichever direction you walked, there was one thing you would not encounter any trace of the nature that lay beyond the city walls. For Frankfurters and for most 18th century European city dwellers, nature appeared either in the form of a manicured garden or domesticated animals, or in the form of a threat out there, a threat that needed to be subdued or harnessed for the culture in here. By the time that you died, in 1832, not only had the Holy Roman Empire come to an end, 
and Louis XVI been beheaded. But biology, the science of life, had become a discipline. Distinct from chemistry and physics with its own objects of inquiry, living beings. These beings, it appeared, were not mere machines. And they seemed to have a lot in common with human consciousness. For they appeared to be self-organizing directed in their ability to maintain themselves, nourishing, healing, and of course, reproducing themselves. Nature, moreover, was something to admire and extol for its infinite variety and its wisdom. Nature had a language, and it spoke most clearly to the artist, but also to the scientist. Culture was no longer opposed to nature, but had become its most conscious expression. This meant, as the founder of geography, Alexander von Humboldt, put it just two decades earlier, that the destruction of nature will necessarily result in the destruction of culture. So, what happened between 1749 and 1832? What happened in those years that inspired such vast shifts in our thinking about nature and its relation to culture? Now, the timeline I've just described is the lifetime of the great German poet, scientist, and philosopher, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe was born in Frankfurt in 1749 and died in Weimar in 1832. He was born in one world and died in a very different one. And in many ways, he was a significant and active participant in the shifts I've just noted. So, what inspired these shifts? Or better, what kinds of epistemic transformations took place that enabled this deeper understanding of nature. Sometime between the 1770s and 1790s, a number of thinkers began to applying artistic methods onto the study of nature. And this enabled them to see nature differently. Nature no longer ap appeared to be dead and meaningless, but alive and brimming with meaning. Specifically, they applied the humanistic methods for studying ancient or historical texts onto nature. Thus, they began to interpret nature rather than simply observe or measure it. How did they do this exactly? Well, they began by invoking the notion of a context or a world, as in the context in which a text is composed or a world in which an author is born. And they applied this onto nature. And what did they see? They started to realize that the various natural beings that are part of a context are actually interacting with one another, that they're influencing one another forming, shaping one another. 
And this led to a really important and new realization. That these parts were not isolated individuals. That they fundamentally depended on one another such that they could not function properly or even exist without one another. This was a huge insight idea of a context and the fact that all these beings are dependent on a context. They applied these same methods to investigate the internal structure of those beings that nourish, heal, and reproduce themselves, what we would today call living beings. And what did they see? Again, they started to see that the various organs that make up living beings are not isolated parts but rather fundamentally dependent on one another, such that they could not function properly or exist without one another, that they enabled one another to keep doing the work, and that they formed one another. The heart cannot function properly without the lungs, the arteries, the veins, in fact, the whole circulatory system. This revealed that the relations between the different parts of nature and of a living being were not merely mechanical. Rather, it became increasingly evident that these relations were ruled or determined by a different set of laws, laws that took into account the distinctive and individual capacities structures, and functions of these various parts, and not merely their location in space. This meant that these various parts were not passive or mute. Somehow they were communicating with one another, expressing themselves to one another. And this once again brought them closer to us, or us closer to them. Suddenly, nature no longer appeared to be dead or morally irrelevant, but dynamic, active, communicative, alive, and not unlike us. In fact, we ourselves are an expression of nature. What this shows is not only the extremely fruitful way in which the arts and sciences once collaborated, or how this fruitful collaboration might serve as an example for us today, it also points to an important space between so-called brute reality and social reality. It points, in other words, to the fact that our understanding of nature shifts depending on the metaphors and conceptual frameworks we use to think about nature. And this gets to the heart of the environmental crisis, which is not only a biophysical crisis, but a crisis of reason or a crisis of culture, a crisis born out of concepts that have failed to give us access to the gravity of the situation and to enable us to experience or to sense its proximity. To sense, in other words, the fact that the destruction of nature will indeed result in the destruction of culture. If we are going to expand our circle of concern then, 
we must shift the way we think about nature, just as the thinkers of the late Enlightenment and early Romanticism did. And this requires the genuine and respectful coming together of the arts and sciences, where artistic ways of thinking and seeing are called upon to challenge us and enable us to expand our circle of concern. To once again sense the proximity of nature and recognize the moral significance of this dynamic reality that is not out there. Thank you. Thank you very much um, to all of the speakers. Uh, so now we're just going to move into um, a bit of panel discussion amongst um, the four of us for a moment, and there's a great deal of food for thought in there, and um, I thought uh, that I'd just pick up on a, a, a phrase, Dahlia, that, that you used um, just now, but I think that for others it will be equally uh, important, and that was the distinction you made between brute reality and social reality. Uh, this is a distinction that we've talked about in our conversations. Um, and so my understanding of that distinction, I think, is, is, is critical uh, for a number of the things that came out. So the, the philosopher John Searle, um, you know, among many others, uh, but he has made this distinction in those terms by saying, well, brute reality is that aspect of reality that, that uh, persists quite independent of what we believe, what we want, what we think about it, uh, like the mushrooms um, in the story that I told, that it doesn't matter what you believe about them, they will still do their work on your liver. Um, social reality, however, it, it, it consists of facts that are literally created by our beliefs and by the way that we, uh, by the way that we act. So facts like whether, for example, I'm licensed to drive in New South Wales is it's either true or it's false, but if it's true, it's created by human activity and human statements and sort of legal, um, uh, legal declarations. You know, I can show you my my card. Um, so I think it, it, this distinction is important for, for all of us, really. Um, and with respect to the, the driving the car example, I, I you know, the, the, the social reality is I'm licensed or I'm not. But then there's, of course, the brute reality, which is do I actually, in fact, know how to drive a car? And these two things are not necessarily uh, connected. So um, you know, firstly, perhaps we can come back to you, Dahlia. Do you think, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the, the issues that you were raising. I mean, what's the relevance of this distinction? Obviously, when we're thinking about nature and we're thinking about describing natural systems, that's one of you know your classic kind of domains of brute reality. How does it relate to social reality? Thank you, Nick. So, how I would how how I think about this is to say that nature is both brute reality and it's not brute reality. It's both. In the sense that, yes, there is nature, there's death caps, and these death caps are going to kill the human being because of the way it reacts, our bodies react to the chemical makeup of these death caps. But nature as such, and our relationship to nature, cannot be a simple brute reality because so much of that understanding has to do with our valuation of nature. And whether it's like us, whether it's different from us, with that circle of concern, that you brought out earlier. So as soon as we start to talk about why something is important or why something is significant, we leave the very basic level of brute reality and we start to think about it in much more social reality terms. But my claim is that there's something in between the two, that it's not just brute reality or social reality, because nature is 
real. It's out there. And we're not constructing it in the same way that we have constructed legal, the legal sphere. And so we're always having to interact with this reality and think about it better. Become better at thinking about it. Become better thinkers. Use better metaphors. Use better frameworks to think about it. And we have to pay attention to nature. We have to listen. Open ourselves to the possibility that the frameworks we're using right now are not appropriate. And so I think that one of the really important things that we as humanists have to do is to force us to reflect on the metaphors and the frameworks that we're using. Say, are these really appropriate? Are we doing the right work? Is it really the case that nature is a system? Is that the best metaphor? Is it really the case that the human brain is a, a computer? So I think that's, you know, the, the, this, this is, it's always emerging, what we think of as nature and how we value it in this back and forth between what is given to us and how we react or respond to it. Duncan, I wonder, um, you know, rights is your thing and, and that's what you were talking about. Um, you know, and in that distinction between brood and social reality I mentioned before, rights are typically put forward as being your classic archetypal kind of social reality, mm -hmm. right? You know, but the, the ownership, for example, is a classic mm -hmm. case. And if I own something, I have the right to do what I want with it. Um, but physically speaking, you could, if you're more powerful than me, you could lean over and grab it. Um, so, you know, how do you see that tension between the brood reality and the social reality in relation yeah, to... Yeah, you know, there's a wonderful example from Nozick where he says, if I take a can of tomato soup. If, if, so if I, if I believe in the sort of uh, the labor theory of property, if I, if I, you know, Locke famously said, if you mix your labor with something, you own it. And Nozick said, if I take a can of tomato soup and I pour it into the Atlantic Ocean, do I, and I made that soup, do I then own the Atlantic Ocean? You know, you're sort of, you know, you push the logic. But I mean, look, I think, I mean, Dali has given a really beautiful, I think, expression of this, this, this middle space between brute and social reality. And I think, I think it does apply in the moral and political domain, as I was saying. You know, um, there are uh, sort of what you might call common sense truths uh, about the world that we shouldn't, um, in a sense, get in the game of, of, of spending a lot of time denying. And of course, there is a reputable philosophical uh, uh, tradition of asking, you know, really hard questions about around a kind of radical skepticism about you know, whether there is an external world, whether we're trapped in a, in a, in a sort of metaphysical, diabolical um, um, bubble um, being controlled from from some uh, demon, but you know, <laughs> we are. By the way. We are, by the way. Yeah. So, sorry, sorry to let you in on that. Um, but but I do think this. I mean, I do think that you know, as I was trying to just hint at, I do think when we start thinking about the complex, we put it this way, the complex structures within which we think about concepts like rights, we quickly move into this more middle space, and and you know. The very concept of right of a right, for example, it does itself has a kind of historicist or historical character to it. Right? The way we understood the nature of a right in the 17th or 18th century is very, very different from the way, at least in, in, in some significant ways, there are, there are continuities, but there are very significant differences now. I mean, think about the impact of feminism or of uh, recent uh, critical race theory or, I mean, and the best work in this domain is actually asking hard questions about the infrastructure, uh, the intellectual infrastructure around our concepts. And I think that does mean uh, accepting a certain kind of historicity in our, in our concepts, which does press against 
any easy distinction between, um, you know, the say the brute reality of, of a moral concept versus a kind of relativistic uh, uh, grasp of a moral concept. I think I think I think like Dahlia, the space in between those two uh, is is probably where a lot of important uh, political work is is being done. Yeah. And and I think, as I was saying, I think it's you know that is one, and it's hard, right? It, 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 you know, I do think this is part of what it means to be a sort of thoughtful member of a political community in the 21st century. It's not taking the easy out and saying, there are truths and the rest of you are postmodern idiots. Yeah. Nor, nor, nor is it acceptable to say, you know, we can do away with truth and just be kind of liberal ironists. I mean, it's hard work. You, you, you do need to pay attention to the work that our concepts do. And, um, and, 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 and grasp the, 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 the complexity of that work um, in, our, you know, in, our daily, in our daily lives. That, that's not easy, and that's, that's far removed, I think, from, from what probably many of us think the current political environment uh, is, is encouraging. Yeah, thanks. So I'm just fascinated by the idea of the uh, the consequences of sort of facts. So if a true, if something comes out and we decide that it's true, we agree that it's true. It has these various kinds of consequences. Um, and you know, so coming to you, Rebecca, that I was fascinated by your your phrase classifying deaths. Mm. You know, and and I. I you know, I took it from what you then went on to say was that you know this, there were different ways of describing what had happened, mm. uh, which would then get accepted or not accepted or, or um, made legally binding or, or not made legally binding. And what to me, what that really raises is the question of the accountability that arises from alternative descriptions of what is uh, really a quite serious piece of brute reality. Uh, mm. Death is pretty much right in the middle of brute reality. You think about it. So um, I wondered if you could comment on that distinction in, in, in the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, I think that when you're looking at the circumstance of death, you really enter difficult territory because you're talking about a fact or a critical event which um, by its nature enters into a particular kind of process, so a medical legal process, a coronial process. So the kinds of, um, the kinds of death that I'm interested in discussing, I suppose, are those that cause us the most concern, the most trouble, or really they should, right? We sort of talk about them as, and certainly um, death investigation processes talk about them as the, those public interest cases, the cases that we should bear the most concern for because, for example, they have broader implications for issues of death prevention, you know, so deaths in state care um, should be duly examined precisely because what's at stake is the fact that as a vulnerable person in the care of someone else. But I think um, the contestation emerges when you then enter what is a particular kind of legal architecture, which has a particular setup, a, a particular set of symbols and flourishes, um, a whole range of metaphors, uh, signs that it draws upon to draft its sort of legal arrangements and legal agreements, and I think that rubs up against very um, deeply and in a very tense way with the lived experience of people, for example, who've lost a loved one and then have to encounter a process. So one of the things that we've sort of been talking about over the last week is the fact that families 
that families, by all accounts, who've had a model inquest process, they've had equality of arms, for example, they've had access to legal representation, they've had an empathic coroner, um, they've had coronial findings of some substance, you know, over, over 30 pages, quite decent narrative findings, and they've had coronial recommendations come away from a process saying that statement about what happened to my loved one is not the truth and it doesn't ring true for me. And the problem with aspects of death investigation in this country and others around issues of contested death is that there's a vacuum of accountability. So we, we seek to, in some jurisdictions, we, you know, the legal architecture of rights is, is kind of employed and deployed to represent that kind of critical scrutiny of a death, but that doesn't necessarily lead to accountability. So in a country like Australia where you have in principle rights enshrined in various aspects of death investigation law but no sort of substantive legal architecture around them. You have a, an even sort of greyer area and we have a history of a lack of accountability, not only in this country but in others, around those statements. So you have families who encounter statements about what happened to their loved one which just don't ring true. And then what happens? What so there are different things that you know that people want to mean by accountability, or that they you know that might be implied there. And, and I'm sort of interested in the distinctions between what you're suggesting here. One would be, well, I want to hear something that makes sense to me, or that I think is is proper. Um, another reading is, well, certain things would follow. Mm. Um, you know, so if you were going to decide that X had happened, certain things would follow. Um, but if you if you did, were going to judge that why it had happened, more different things would follow, or nothing nothing would happen. So for you is 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 and, and, and for families and communities is accountability the most important thing or not? Well, I think accountability manifests in different ways, just like you say. And I think in you know certain cases that are sort of ongoing, we have differences in opinion as to what people think is the sort of the right, the just you know, the right, just outcome. So it depends upon the person. But I think one of the things that we uh, always seem to forget when we talk about death is that death actually has a history. And so particularly in this country and, and also other settler colonial societies, death isn't just a sort of a simple, it is a sort of a simple brute reality, but it's social reality and the way it's experienced is it's far more... Um, uh, kind of grounded in historical social experience than just, you know, someone who dies in a hospital bed having experienced sort of palliative care and, you know, sort of choosing to sort of end their days um, in that environment. So um, I think when we start to unpack questions of accountability, we can't make sort of general statements around what's the track for justice. Right. Thank you. Over to Anna-Marie to close out. Well, I heard when were the drinks starting, so I knew to, to get up immediately. As, as Nick said, our panel have given us um, considerable food for thought this evening, so please join with me in thanking them. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.